Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. You know, one of the common themes that run through the stories of those recovering alcoholics I've interviewed for this podcast is the importance of going to meetings. Mostly, it's emphasized within the context of what to do after we've stopped drinking in order to stay sober. However, there are those active alcoholics who continue to drink while they're going to AA. They fulfill AA's only membership requirement expressed in the third tradition by having the desire to stop drinking, even though they continue to drink. Today's guest, Emily M., is one of those who had the desire but simply could not stop drinking in the nearly five years she attended AA meetings on a regular basis. Though many of her fellow members gave up on her along the way, the spirit of the third tradition prevailed among those who really cared, and eventually she stopped drinking over 31 years ago. After finally getting sober, Emily immersed herself in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, got a sponsor, studied the big book, worked the steps, and continued to attend meetings. She became heavily involved in service work and sponsorship and found a spiritual connection through her active involvement in the fellowship. Emily's powerful story is one of perseverance and determination. For those who are still drinking and or struggling to stay sober, even while attending meetings, her message provides a useful addendum to one of AA's most popular sayings. Meeting makers make it. Sooner or later. And so, on this, the 26th episode of AA Recovery Interviews, I'm thrilled to welcome my good friend and AA sister, Emily M. My name is Emily, and I am an alcoholic. Emily, I am so glad that you're here today, and it's been more than a year since I've seen you, obviously, because of the COVID situation and all the meetings going virtual and on to Zoom, but it seems like I just saw you yesterday, and whenever I think about the people in the program, it's like when you're seeing a relative you haven't seen in a while, but you've got so much in common with them that even when you haven't seen them for a long time, you get together and you're like right back in the groove. That's how I feel with you every time I see you over at the club. So how have you been getting along over the last year with Zoom meetings or with uh, the COVID situation in general? I distinctly remember the first day when I actually talked to people and I said, I'm not doing Zoom ever. And it was on March the 16th, and I was at a meeting. I said, I'm never doing – and then they talked about it, and other people talked uh -huh. about it, and they helped me to see yeah. that it might be a good idea. And so the very next day, I got on Zoom, and it was incredible that I could be with people. I could be safe. Mm -hmm. The meetings that I went to were filled with the program with them talking about mm -hmm. the solution. There are people there mm -hmm. that you know, mm -hmm. from all over the states and other places too that I had not met before that I will never meet again, mm -hmm. but I've learned mm -hmm. so much. So I truly have expanded and learned a lot from people that I would never have met before. And I go to more meetings because of that. It's really expanded our worldview of AA. I know it has for me. There was a point at which I was only doing Zoom meetings in, in Houston. And then after a while, I got to feeling like, wait, maybe we're the only people in the country or in the world who are experiencing this thing with the pandemic. So I intentionally went to some meetings in Australia and New Zealand and Canada and South America. I still do two meetings a week now in Great Britain, which is very, very cool. My hope is that some vestige of Zoom remains after we're all back in regular meetings. Speaking of which, you've been sober how long now? 31 years. And your sobriety date? November 28, 1989. I got sober in Kansas, and then I moved down to Houston about two years later, and we met at the hospital. Oh, Rosewood. Okay. I went to Rosewood, and so I would see you, what, on Thursday night? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That was a great meeting. That was a hospital that later on got torn down to put up some luxury condos, but the meeting that came out of that is still meeting on Thursday evenings. I've noticed when I see you over at the Delta, you're doing a women's meeting concurrently with when the, the mixed meeting is in the bigger room. Do you do predominantly women's meeting or only women's meetings, or do you do a mix? I do a mix of meetings. I truly feel it important to have a big book study or a 12 yeah. and 12 
in my mm -hmm. life, I believe that that has truly made a difference in my life. So that I, because I love sitting in a meeting, reading the same two paragraphs with 20 other people, and someone else has an entirely different way of looking at a sentence than I do. Mm -hmm. And I learn a lot from that, of being able to see things in a different way that I might not have thought about before. And it makes the books more alive. Now, when you're doing the the big book study over there at Delta, do you do it starting at the beginning and reading all the way through the end, or do you just pick out certain excerpts from the book to focus on? How do you do your, your big book study? The ones that I would attend, they normally just did the first 164 pages, and they just read it from the doctor's opinion, from the forward, all the way through. Yeah. And we read a little bit and then talk about it and then read a little bit and then talk about it for the hour. That's, I think, the traditional way of doing big book studies. I've gone to big book studies throughout my sobriety, and they're always really, really helpful, mm -hmm. especially when you go through them with a dictionary. Mm -hmm. We always try and have a dictionary available to look up words. And I found it very important to do all of the 12 steps and 12 traditions. And so we would do a step and then we would do a tradition because so many people, it's like what it says right in the forward of the 12 and 12, which I absolutely love. Uh -huh. Wait a minute. I have to look it up. And this is what I usually say, right? When, if I am leading, right, we always have other people leading too. It says that sure. AA's 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. AA's 12 traditions apply to the life of the fellowship itself. They outline the means by which AA maintains its unity and relates itself to the world about it, the way it lives and grows. And what I say oh, is, you know, I, you are the group. I am the group. Right. It doesn't just apply yeah. to the group. How does it apply to me? How does it apply yeah. to you? And people yeah. really under, begin to understand that it's not, it's not about them. It's about me. Yeah. The other thing I used to like about that Rosewood meeting, and I, I, you probably recall, was it was run on the traditions very closely. And we had a few members, a few of the old timers in that meeting who were really, really strong on the traditions. And do you ever find that meetings more contemporarily or in the last number of years have been less focused on the traditions than the early meetings you went to? I believe that there are a lot of meetings that are not focused on the traditions and people don't understand because if you've been around like I have and you have, you see mm -hmm. groups that disappear. And yeah. really the basis for that is because they didn't follow the traditions. They really didn't yeah. follow the unity. They have also, it's, it's, a, it's surprising of seeing that and it's, there are a lot of people that don't think the traditions apply to them. Yeah. And, you know, it applies to your family. Right. How you relate to your family, how you relate to your job, how you relate to another person. That I mm -hmm. can learn how to get along. It's like I, that I say the 12 steps teach me about me. The 12 mm -hmm. traditions teach me how to play well with others. <laughs> <laughs> how to set up how that's to set up your playground. That's right. right. That's right. It really does. It really it can, it can impact all of our lives. And people yeah. have learned a lot from that, being able to do that. Yeah. And it, it took them until, what, 1950 or so to really put the traditions together. So can you imagine what it was like during the 11 years after the book was written? What I understand about it is that there were a lot of groups that were doing things entirely their own way. They had a loose outline of the big book that they were going from in meetings, but it was always the topic du jour, which might or might not pertain to staying sober. And I think the, the good thing about the traditions is they do keep us focused on what's so important. Well, and they had a lot of rules, and Jill and Dr. Bob recognized because they sent out letters to the different groups asking them what their rules were, and they realized yeah. that they wouldn't have passed. <laughs> they wouldn't be able to attend these meetings because they wouldn't pass. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And I remember, you know, I recall hearing about early meetings where things were such that people would be voted in and out. So if you slipped, you had to be voted back in by the by the group. <laughs> there were all kinds of crazy things like that. So I'm really grateful that in the number of years you and I have both been sober, we've enjoyed the benefit of having the traditions already in place and the 12 and 12 already written. I was going to say, I have been kicked out of groups. The groups are no longer around, but have you? Yeah, oh, yes. Yes, I have. What were the circumstances around that? Well, and it took me about eight years to get sober from the yeah. first time that I was, was forced to go to a meeting. Really? 
Yes, because I was not going to be getting, I did not want to do this, didn't want to do Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, mm-hmm. I was married to a man at one time, and he let me know that AA was just a bunch of old people sitting around talking war stories. And it's like, that had nothing to do with me. And so mm-hmm. people talk about it. And I was forced to go to uh, some meetings because I overdosed at work. And they made mm-hmm. me go to some meetings. And I was absolutely petrified. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first meeting that I went to, I thought, I don't relate to any of these people. And there was a woman there who, uh, she would take all of her little stuffed animals and get into a closet. And she'd sit there and drink and talk to her animals. And I thought, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. <laughs> so, so it's like, so I was like, I, so I was really scared. Alcohol truly was my life. Yeah. And I could not, I could not let it go. But I also couldn't think straight. And so I would go to meetings. Uh-huh. My family brought me back from San Francisco. That was what I was living in San Francisco at the time. My family uh-huh. brought me back to Kansas to try to help me and support me. And I would go to yeah. meetings there, but I would get drunk. And when I'd embarrass huh. myself, I'd go to another meeting, but they didn't kick me out. There are people that really did try to help me. But this one meeting that I went to, they didn't like people to get drunk. And they didn't like you to go to any other meetings. And they didn't like you to read any of the books, other books except for the big book. They didn't even want you sure. to read the 12 and 12. And yeah. so I got drunk and they told me that I couldn't come back. Huh. What saved me, because I absolutely knew that this, I was not going to get sober. Yeah. They showed mm-hmm. me that I was not going to get sober. Hmm. But I kept going to meetings anyway because I found that mm-hmm. there was something sitting in those chairs, listening to these people. It's like I could feel comfortable in my own skin for an hour. And that was very different for me. That you had something that I wanted. I just didn't think it was going to work for me. I truly thought that I was one of those unfortunates that could not get sober. Yeah. How long did you go to meetings while you were actively drinking? Or was that just a one-time occurrence where you went drunk? Oh, no, no. That That was four or five years. You went to meetings after having drank that day? Yes, or else really? I drink right wow. after the meeting. Yes. And there oh, are times, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, I would. <laughs> what was what was there about your AA experience? I'm just curious. This is this is interesting. What was there about your AA experience that allowed you to justify going to AA but still drinking? It had everything to do with my knowing that these people talked about stuff. They had something that I wanted. Yeah. I, ju- and I, I, could, I liked the feeling that I got there. I liked mm-hmm. what it was, but I could not stop. Mm. I could not stop that. And so I would, went to this meeting and they kicked me out. And I was lucky because I ran into these two people and they had a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And they saw me and they came up to me and it'll probably make me cry. Mm-hmm. And, and what they said was, those people that kicked you out were wrong. They mm. should not have done that. The, by mm-hmm. the way, the group is no longer there. And what they did was that they helped me because this was in, you know, 1988. And yeah. I was in Kansas City and they let me know that there were some people, there were two people in Kansas City. They were the first sober alcoholics that were practicing therapy in Kansas City. And mm. so they helped me to get into these people. And mm-hmm. I started talking to them. And then they mm-hmm. had me go see a psychiatrist. Right. And uh, they had this new drug out. And I didn't think I really want to take it, but it was called Prozac. So they said that mm-hmm. we would have a beta test on this Prozac if you'd like to try it. And so I, I did take it. And I recognized that what it did for me was to help me to have a clear thought. Because I... Mm-hmm. It was so cluttered. Mm-hmm. And so everything was hopeless inside. And so I'd have the Prozac and I could get a clear thought so that I could function for that day. And it helped me uh. to listen better. Mm-hmm. And then listening in the meetings. And so, and I was only on that for about six months. And then, but I kept going to meetings. I started doing one day at a time. Mm-hmm. I could not do 10 days. I could not mm-hmm. do two weeks. I couldn't do 30 mm-hmm. days. Because mm-hmm. if I counted them, I knew I'd fail. Hmm. I had to do it today. I can yeah. stay sober today. I never yeah. got a chip until I was at least a year sober. And there are all these people. I'd, I, you know, I'd had a, quite a few sponsors before that. Uh-huh. 
And of course they always fired me, but this, Hmm. uh, when I finally had a year sober, I told this one person who was really nice and she really did try to help me, but it just, it just didn't work. But she came and I still, she gave me a card and I still have it because it, uh, what she said is Emily, when I hear keep coming back, I'll always think of you (laughs) because they never, people never thought that I would get sober. They never thought that I would get sober. They put up with you actually a long time. For a long time, drinking and meeting. But I go to different ones. Yes. Right, right. I get that. So what's really fascinating about what you're saying is that you had a moment of clarity or you had your moments of clarity, but they were only clear because that you were on the Prozac at the time. And I get that because depression, anxiety, those cloud up your mind and getting a moment of clarity into that kind of situation is not really very clear. Mm-hmm. And I didn't start with antidepressants until after I was already sober. But if you have a moment of clarity at a time in your life where you don't have a clear mind, it's no longer really a moment of clarity, is it? Beginning to see and being able to listen to someone, they have an idea that's different than yours, which is what Alcoholics yeah. Anonymous really is about, helping right. me to see things in a different way. And yeah. I'd go home and I'd do something. And it's like, and it worked. It's like, oh my gosh, it worked. I was, wow. it was, it was just shocking to me that these people could have say things to me and it would work. So like I said, I, huh. I did, I don't actually know what my real sobriety date is because I right. did this for one day at a time. And then one day I was going to a meeting and it dawned on me that I hadn't had a drink for a long time. And I think that it was around February, March or something. I don't know when I stopped drinking, but I decided just to use my birthday. (laughs) So so that was my sobriety day because I knew that I had been drinking, had not been drinking. It was before that, but I just didn't know the time. So you've been able to have two joyful celebrations within one day for a very, very long time. That's right. You know what? I used to go to a men's meeting where there was a man who was drinking, even though he was a regular at that meeting. For close to seven years. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting, what was finally his moment, his turning point, his moment of reckoning was, and it was very, it was very innocently done, but the coffee guy who was an older fellow who was doing that for many, many years, a guy by the name of Jim, went up to him after a meeting one day and said, hey, you know what? I've never seen you get a birthday chip. And it finally dawned on this man who had been drinking even though he had the desire to stop, he kept he kept drinking. That's when he actually stopped was when he realized that the jig was up, so to speak. So you did that for four or five years then, huh? Of going to meetings. Yeah, cause, and going I remember the point when I recognized that other people could help me because I remember being at work one day mm-hmm. and my boss did something. And I was yeah. angry. I was angry. Sure. And I called uh-huh. my sponsor because he absolutely knew for a fact that the sponsor, that she was going to mess up. That, oh, that, yeah. That's another thing is that I, <laughs> I was going to come in. I was going to try it. I knew that it wasn't going to work. They're going to tell me to do these things. It's not going to work. And then yeah. I can go drink again. And so I right. called my sponsor up that I had at that time. And she said, you know, go into the bathroom and pray about it. And then go talk to him. And we talked a little bit. And I thought, this is the stupidest thing in the world. So I went in the bathroom <laughs> and I prayed and I prayed. And then I was calm and I walked in. And I know it wasn't a big deal, but I walked in and talked to this person. And it turned out wonderfully. And I walked mm. out of there and I was shocked that it worked. Wow. Because I did things in a different way than I had before. And it's like, Wow. wow. Maybe I can learn something that I'm capable of learning. That's the big deal, that I was capable of change, that I could do this with your help. I Mm -hmm. cannot do this on my own. I cannot. Did you get a sense of the spirituality aspect of the program after you went in there and prayed and then you reported back to your sponsor on how it turned out? Did she draw any connection for you about the spiritual end of the program? It was a beginning, right? There for a while, you couldn't talk to me about God because uh-huh. it's like what my sponsor said, because I said, I don't want to pray. I remember the very beginning, I'm not going to pray. <laughs> what my sponsor <laughs> said was, said, I don't want to, I don't believe it. And I don't want to do that. She said, Emily, it doesn't matter what you think. It matters what you do. Oh, and yeah. so I started praying, even though I didn't believe in it mm-hmm. and yeah. things changed inside of me. So I could mm. begin to have that sense 
mm-hmm. of calm that you can get from a connection to a higher power. I began mm-hmm. to have that and then having so I could see these things slowly come to fruition that this really could work for me, that I really can have a connection to a power greater than myself. Now, And mm-hmm. I had some really great sponsors, too, because I had a problem with the word God. I don't yeah. have a problem with power. Something that right. is so, it's so far beyond my thought. I do not know what it is. I just know that yeah. it's there, and I have a sense sure. of purpose and of calm when I'm a part of that power of whatever it is. I know mm-hmm. it. You came into the program. You said in Kansas. Did you? Were you raised in Kansas? Are you uh, from there originally? Hutchinson, Kansas. What do you remember about your early life as it relates to alcoholism? Was there alcoholism in your family? Or what do you recall from your early life that might have steered you down the path where you ended up in AA? My family in Kansas didn't drink. There's drinking on the other side of the family, but my family in Kansas didn't drink. But I do remember my dad would go out on Saturday nights. Uh My mother died when I was seven, and that was very difficult. It seemed like it was a wonderful loving family. My mother Mm -hmm. died and my dad was left with four kids like in 1956. It was really difficult for him and he changed. I think it hurt him a lot. But when you're seven years old and I had a sister that's three years younger than me, it was really difficult for him. So I didn't really drink until I was in high school, except for my dad would go out He'd got to dancing. He loved to dance and so on. Saturday uh-huh. night, he'd get ready to go dancing and he'd have a bottle of Mogan David wine and he'd have <laughs> a little glass of Mogan David wine and my sister would come up and he would let us have a sip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I remember having that sip when you're nine years old and you can taste it and you can feel yeah. it go down your throat and you can feel yeah. it go down your belly. <laughs> this is wonderful. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So I loved it right from the very beginning, but I didn't drink then. But then in high Uh school, I didn't drink, but we were at France, and then we had a senior prom, and we decided Mm -hmm. we were going to do something exciting. We got some slow gin. Slow gin. Slow gin. Mm. I had never, and I'd never really drunk before. I really hadn't. And we had slow gin, Uh and of course, I drank a lot, and I got really Uh sick, and and I, (laughs) I, I counted. I threw up seven times. Oh, my God! And I, I want you to know, I loved drinking, but the only mm-hmm. thing I would not drink is slow gin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I drank uh, yeah. it after, as I counted. And, I said, and my thought was, well, let's find something I like better. <laughs> Thank goodness there are so many different types of liquor. I, That's right. <laughs> my nemesis early on was tequila. The very first time I drank tequila, I was a freshman in college. I'd never really drank very much before. But I remember going to this party and I was drinking a beer or two, but then they started passing around this tequila and I didn't know how to drink tequila. So I took the bottle in the kitchen. I filled a, like a, a regular beverage glass about half full with tequila and I poured seven up in the rest of it. <laughs> and I drank that whole glass of seven up and tequila. And I got so violently ill that it took me two days to recover. From that day on until maybe 15, well, a long time after that, I just couldn't stomach tequila. Just the smell of it would make me nauseous. But thank God there were lots of alternatives. (laughs) That's right. And that's my answer. It's not that we're going to stop drinking. It's like, let's go find something else. (laughs) <laughs> oh, my gosh. So you were doing this, that, that kind of started at your senior yeah. senior prom. So you were, let's say, close to 17, 18 years old when you started in earnest. What were the years like past high school? It seemed like it was just normal in Hutchinson, Kansas, to go out partying mm-hmm. on Friday and Saturday night. But I also yeah. recognized that I, that I had a lot of everything that was going on. I think uh-huh. that after my mother died that mm-hmm. there is a lot of trauma, you know, and, yeah. and I was, when I came into the program, of course, I was mm-hmm. blaming my dad on it, but I yeah. also discovered that my sisters and my brother, they had the same family life and oh, they didn't yeah. drink like I did. Oh, so, okay. so I thought, well, okay, well, it's not that. The thing is, I was traumatized. I felt broken. Yeah. I truly felt broken. Yeah. I truly felt wounded. And mm-hmm. so I 
did drink. It did make me feel good. You know, the party mm-hmm. and have it. Yeah. And, you know, one of mine insane yeah. thoughts, we'd have this place that we go to on Friday night. I And so I just cannot believe that I survived my youth because huh. one of my comments was, I may be really drunk, but my car knows the way home. Oh that God. made sense to me. I just thought that was funny. And it's like, oh, yeah. my gosh. I cannot believe how lucky I am that I survived my use, the things that we did. An invitation to drunk driving all the time, mm-hmm. I guess, huh? How, mm-hmm. how long did you do that? In Kansas, that was I did that for years. Oh, my I did. goodness. It was, I mean, it's like, wow. just, to, just to think of it, it's just incredible. It's pretty amazing that we survived that kind of thing. I, I think about the same thing all the times that I drove drunk. But the only time I ever got pulled over was I wasn't drunk, but I was stoned on marijuana. And I had joints in the car, and the car, it was a little Volkswagen Beetle. And uh, the state trooper pulled up in back of me. And instead of letting him come over to the window where he would have smelled the pot and seen the joints on the seat, I got out of my car and I went up to him. And usually what they'll say is get back in the car. But he allowed me to talk to him by the side of the road. And I was able to talk myself out of, I think it was a bad uh, taillight or something like that. But I dodged that bullet fairly well. But I am grateful to my higher power, whom I choose to call God, mm-hmm. that he got me through all of those times. Because there's plenty of people I've interviewed for this show who got DUIs on many occasions or shortly after they started drinking. So you stayed in Kansas for how many years after high school? I stayed in Kansas. I went from Hutchinson to Lawrence, Kansas, to Kansas City. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. I think I moved from Kansas City to San Francisco when I was about 28. And then I was in San Francisco for about 12 years. And San Francisco is a great place to get really crazy. People in Kansas are just pretty much can be down to earth. And people yeah. in San Francisco, they had different outlooks on things, I guess is what I want to say. I see. In Kansas, it's like you see somebody and it seems like they are who they are. Yeah. And I went to San Francisco and it's like these people seem to want to be friends, and then they just went away. It just, it just, uh-huh. I think it was, it could have been because I was just so scared. Yeah. Being on my own, being, but I loved San Francisco, and I did. That's when I really started drinking. The intervening years between high school and going to San Francisco, did your drinking hold relatively steady or level during that time, or did you find yourself? getting deeper and deeper into it until you left for San Francisco. I felt like I was partying and that it was fun. And it was, I didn't see any real problem with that, you know, and there were different drugs. My idea on different drugs or something that I would take is that I felt like I wasn't in control of my brain when I was doing those. So I didn't Mm. do those where I could always control alcohol. (laughs) And you know, that's a lie. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's a lie, but that's what I said. No, can't do these. I remember doing some things that it felt like my brain was three feet above my head. And I was like, can't do this again. Yeah. And alcohol will take you there sooner or later. But you feel like you're in control. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you do until until it's controlling you. And then it's a whole different story. So when you went out to San Francisco at 28, was that still the days of Haight-Ashbury and and uh, the stuff that was going on in Berkeley and, and those times? What was it like when you got there? I came from Kansas where we had you could go to prison for having a joint for seven. I've known Uh people that went to prison for years for having a joint. I went to San Francisco where they were smoking joints in Golden Gate Park. (laughs) 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 Lounging around, smoking, and it's like, really? (laughs) (laughs) So it was very different for me. That's Like I said, Mm -hmm. it wasn't, it was, people had different attitudes but it was also me because it was such a different environment that I yeah. thought someone would be there and be my friend. And and I didn't know how to do that at all. Uh-huh. So it was yeah. scary and, and, and alcohol. And then I got married to this person and he was a very strong alcoholic. Mm-hmm. It did not turn out well at all. It was not. He was a vicious alcoholic. And it's like with, I think, a lot of people that you see somebody mm-hmm. and... You have the idea that being together that you can fix them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there are a lot of people that are like that. For some reason, it's like, I thought I could fix him. or I understood him or other people couldn't. And he understood because he loved me. Uh-huh. And that was a lie. Uh, how long did that feeling last? Oh, we got married and I knew it was a mistake. 
Yeah. I knew it was a mistake before I even did it. And I even told him, because he kept saying, we should get married, we should get married. And I'm drinking a lot. Uh And I said, it won't work. It won't work. And he said, oh, no, it'll work. And I said, we're going to get married. I'll marry you. But I'm going to prove to you it isn't going to work. (laughs) (laughs) So this marriage was a great experiment, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It didn't work. <laughs> oh my god. But it was it was it was traumatic. It was because he was violent and it was it was, and it yeah. truly was God or higher power that mm. helped me to get through that. There were no women's centers. There was nothing in mm. 1988 or 1989 for women to go to. If they mm. were battered, if they had any place, there was nowhere that you could go that I mm. could mm. find at all. And so I wow. and I remember praying and, and recognizing that I just needed to say one thing over and over again is that you're hurting me. This is not working. You need to leave because yeah. he would go back and forth and with his drinking on, on what he would say. He did finally leave. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of trauma after that, too. I'll bet. It did. I mean, my higher power, my God, truly, truly helped me through that. I know that there have been times in my life where thoughts have come to me just because I have prayed and yeah. known like this is the thing to do. And I did that even before the program. So I, mm-hmm. there are times when my, yes, I have felt like I have been saved. Something helped me to see something, something clicked in my brain. And I had to do it. That was from outside of me or inside of me. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. The Big Book Podcast is read by Howard L., who receives no compensation for this vital service work. The Big Book Podcast is an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories. Listen to all 85 episodes anytime, anyplace. Search for Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. How long did you endure that terrible marriage? Well, I was, we were married for about a year, but I was with him for about three years. So when he finally left, what did you do? I would not talk about it. I would go to work. I would uh-huh. put it back in another part of my brain because yeah. I had no one to talk to about it. So it's oh. like back in this little storage area. And that's another, yeah. you know, we don't talk about our secrets. There are things that we don't say. We just are not sure. going to talk about it. So I went yeah. to work and I acted like it really never really. I didn't talk about it. Didn't talk about him and just went to work and locked it away. My and those are, that's another thing about secrets. That's a horrible bandage. That's not going to mm-hmm. help you. That's not going to free you from all the pain. It just locks yeah. it away so that you have to look at it and then you can be free. You Mm. have to be able to look at it in order to be healed. When I did my fourth and fifth step, what I found in doing my fifth step, because I knew I'm a Mm -hmm. great victim. Mm -hmm. It's nothing is my fault. I had a wonderful sponsor. Mm -hmm. I wrote down, I didn't know how to do it the way the big book did because my brain was pretty pickled after it because I've been drinking a lot for a lot of years. And so she just said, just write stuff down. And I wrote Uh all this stuff down. It was all their fault. And my sponsor helped me to point things out to say, well, you know, maybe there's something we can look at here. And what she said, (laughs) she pointed out the fact that I had been, I had not seen my ex-husband in 10 years and I was drinking over him every day. (laughs) It's like. He was still living with you then, huh? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. It's like, really? Wow. (laughs) What an idea. (laughs) Wow. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> so that she could have, so I could begin to see just how much it was beginning to recognize that it was me. I'm the one that needed to heal from all of this. You know, that's a mm. that's a fabulous thing about this program too, is because I truly hated him. I yeah. really hated this man, and I could not get past that. Huh. And in doing the fourth and fifth step, and then having to put him down on paper on eight and nine. And mm-hmm. recognizing, and that, you know, I had to start praying for this person. I said, I'm not praying for yeah. that. And my sponsor, who was wonderful at the time, said, You can pray for him any way you want to. You got to pray. You can say, Just save that sucker. <laughs> you know, that's the beginning. 
See, and then, and then right. you know, God give him what he deserves. That's a beginning. I could because yeah. I had to start somewhere, yeah, so that I could get mm-hmm. to the point where I could actually begin to say it in a better way and have some concern, and then I could do some writing. And, and I had to do a lot mm-hmm. of writing on that because I couldn't just talk about it. There was so much going on in there and I had to write a lot. And then I had to talk to my sponsor about it. And, you know, and I had also been to therapy about this too. So there was mm-hmm. a lot that went into that. And I remember mm-hmm. one day I left my sponsor's house mm-hmm. and something had changed mm-hmm. and I didn't know what it was. And I felt really odd. And I went mm-hmm. to a meeting because it's like a, something was going on and I needed to get to a meeting. And I went to a meeting mm-hmm. and I never leave meetings early. And I went to this meeting and I couldn't sit com- comfortably in my own skin. And I walked wow. out and it was a couple of days later that I recognized that the hate was gone. It was wow. like a physical presence in my body that had left me. And I had to allow the program to seep in so that I could heal that and get some serenity and some peace. And I, But like yeah. I said, I didn't recognize what that was for a little yeah, while. I get that. You know, the great thing about the fourth step is it takes us from being a victim mm-hmm. and it allows us to reveal to our innermost self that we had a part in whatever the resentment was and the our reactions to that. Did your sponsor have you work it in that way as well? Did you did you figure out what your part was? Well, absolutely. It's recognizing what my sponsor helped me to do. It, it's along with uh, growing up and with my dad or with mm-hmm. my family back then is that there's an old phrase in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not so mm-hmm. much what was done to me. It's what I did with what was done to me. So yeah. there are things that happened in my youth because my dad didn't know how to care. He, all he did, had to, he knew how to be angry. He knew he had yeah. to yell and scream yeah. and I was hurt and my sisters would walk away. I would challenge and I would make him oh, matter. So what I read, wow. what I learned, yes, I'm innocent in his anger. Right. My part was I knew how to make him angrier by my silence yeah. or whatever. And I took that mm-hmm. from when I was nine and I would use that all through my life on how mm. I would react to someone else if I thought that they were going to get mad at me or I could mm-hmm. see it coming. I knew how to set it up so that they'd get madder. Did that surface in your marriage? Yes. In every relationship I had, that would come into play. It would, because if Uh you're not going to love me right, you might not love me the way I want you to. But I, so I am going to make you angry enough to leave. That way it will be your fault and not mine. Mm. That's my logic. Well, and it makes sense when you're still drinking and looking back and seeing that kind of behavior and that kind of involvement. Sounds like it was really healing for you to be able to come to that realization. I recognized when I did five, I talked to my sponsor. Mm-hmm. She could help me to look at these things. Mm-hmm. I recognized that I could change. Yeah. I really yeah. didn't think that I could change until it seemed to be a fact that I uh-huh. had hope I could change. I did not have to live the way I had been living my whole life. And that was very powerful for me. It was. Mm -hmm. You know, there was even with my mother that died when I was seven. I had no idea doing eight and nine Mm -hmm. that so many things that they do in AA I think are so dumb. And then I do them. And so she had me write a letter and I wrote a letter to my mother. Mm -hmm. So what I had to do is I had to go to her grave. I had never Mm -hmm. been to her grave. I didn't want to go. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, she's dead. Mm -hmm. I don't need to go there. I had a friend go take me over there and I started reading this letter to her. Now, when I was growing up, if you wanted to mm-hmm. irritate me, call me honey. I never oh. wanted to be called honey. And so I'm sitting there reading this letter, and I hear this voice saying, oh, honey, it's okay. <laughs> so I recognize my mama called me honey all the time. So after yeah. she died, I didn't want anybody else to call me honey. And now I call huh. all my sponsees honey. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't recognize that. I didn't see that yeah. until I had written that letter and I was at the grave reading that. I didn't realize how much hurt I had and that I was angry at her for leaving. I mm. didn't recognize that until I was there so that I could feel wounded, so I could feel sadness. I needed to be able to do that. That's what the program teaches me, too, is that it's important to feel these things. 
to look at them to feel them. What a beautiful moment that must have been for you. And what a relief to finally get the clarity of seeing the connection between your mom calling you honey. And while you were out there and doing your thing, nobody was to call you honey. And now you're in the program and you're calling everybody, you know, honey. (laughs) That's, that's, That's a beautiful realization. So how did the rest of your eighth and ninth step go? In the beginning, I didn't have a whole lot. Because Uh I was in Kansas, and there were things that happened in San Francisco. And a lot of the people, I didn't even know remember their names. And so I didn't do a whole lot. There was a time, you know, with my family. All of us do this in our own way. And my sponsors were really good in helping me with this. You know, my sister, who's no longer alive, but she helped me a lot. And I talk about it because there was a time I was in Houston by this time. Uh And a friend of mine died. I had only been here for a little while, and I went back to Kansas. And I acted terribly. And I know Mm. today that when I am in a whole lot of pain, when I'm sad, Mm -hmm. tremendously sad, it comes out in anger. And so Mm -hmm. I behaved badly. And I went to my sister, and I tried to make amends, let her know that I was wrong to do that. And what she said was, Emily, you're the most volatile person I never met in my whole life, and I will never trust anything that you say. And I had several years sober then, and I talk about this because it's important. I went and I talked to my sponsor, and she said, we all have our own things that we need to heal from. We all have our own stuff. And also, it's important for me to have a connection to my family so that that can change. And that it's not Mm. like some people think that it's going to be okay in a year or two. Sometimes it takes years to be able to really have a connection with your family. And I knew I had to do that because I did not recognize how much I hurt my family until a few years after I got sober. That's not the kind of outcome that we would care to see when we do a ninth step with somebody for them to say, I will never trust you or believe anything you say ever again. That's difficult to hear, even when you've been indoctrinated with the idea that this is about sweeping off your side of the street. This isn't about forgiveness. It still hurts when you hear that, doesn't it? It hurts, but it was really important for for me to recognize I really hurt them. And I just yeah. put it under the rug. I wasn't with them all the time. Mm-hmm, they, I just mm-hmm. didn't think that it bugged them a lot because I thought I was a pretty nice guy when I came into the program. Yeah, and then I start I doing these steps and looking at this and it's like, no, you are vicious. You are sarcastic. You are cruel. And I'm really lucky. I'm really grateful that all of this didn't come to me all at once. It would not have worked if I had all of this come at me all at one time. Sometimes it takes years for you to see these things, and that's important. You've really had quite a gift bestowed upon you in your sobriety, having a sponsor like that. Well, I've had three sponsors since I've been sober. The first one was in Mm -hmm. Kansas. She helped me to look at the steps, and she helped me to recognize that I could get sober. And then I had to move to to Houston, and Mm -hmm. I had two other sponsors. One of them helped me to find a higher power and learn about the traditions. And the other Uh one helped me to really look at me all together, to put the whole thing together, to really see that this is a way of life, that I still need to talk to my sponsor sometimes today, because Mm. I found it very difficult in the beginning saying things in a way that weren't cruel or sarcastic. So I have to talk to my sponsor and say, this is what I want to say. And she would say, oh, honey, I don't think I'd say that. (laughs) And then then she'd say, we want to say it this way, so I could learn how to say things even, you know, yeah. and I didn't understand in the beginning, too, where it talks about in the big book, too, that it, it sounded like I can't get angry. It's not that I can't yeah. get angry. I just don't know how to get angry in the right way. So I learned from my sponsor how to say things, stand up for myself so that I can be affirmative without trying to attack you. Well, while you were saying that, I was thinking about how grateful I am that in the 33 years, because I didn't get a sponsor till I was sober almost a year, but... Uh, Over all those years, one of the greatest gifts he ever gave me was whenever I would be in those situations and call him with those kind of emotional responses, he would help me reestablish my emotional equilibrium, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I was taken down from whatever level of anger or frustration or whatever else down to a reasonable level. And that didn't mean you can't get angry about this, but just like what you were saying, there's a right way and a wrong way to express 
express anger. Because I always heard that anger kind of clarifies things, but when it leads into rage and other behavior like that, it's no good for anybody. So, Emily, it sounds to me like you were established on pretty solid footing in your program early on by virtue of the sponsors that you had at the time. Were you going to meetings on a regular basis at that point, and were you working with others? What what did your first number of years in AA look like with regard to uh, your comfortability with the program and your willingness to do service work, etc.? In the first few years, they didn't have 90 meetings in 90 days when I got sober. They said, really? go to a meeting every day. <laughs> Every day. So yeah, I okay. went to a meeting so every day for about three and a half years. I guess it was like a year and a half because it was in mm-hmm. Kansas. And then there was a blizzard one day and I was driving and I thought, maybe I don't need to go to a meeting today. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so I, but I would still go every day when I could. I would go every day, sometimes twice a day. But I met, I also wow. had someone else who was a pillar at this, the beautiful town, town serenity group. Larry had been a delegate and he talked about service work and he talked about the stuff going on, the business part uh-huh. of AA. And he said, it's really uh-huh. good. You can learn a lot. And he was a very well-respected man. He said, they'd have these meetings. And I said, huh? And he wanted me to go to one. I thought, eh. But I went to this meeting and it was a district meeting, the GSRs. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I walked right. in the room and there were men there. <laughs> and I thought, well, oh, this will my. be interesting. But I recognized, and what he helped me to see, is that the whole purpose of the traditions of these business meetings, you know, people keep talking about how they're just politics, and that people come into these meetings because they want the best for Alcoholics Anonymous. Sure. Everyone's going to have different ideas, but what he helped me to see is that Alcoholics Anonymous does change overall, but the Uh basics, I want the basics of Alcoholics Anonymous to stay the same. The traditions, the steps, it's vitally important to keep that and to recognize that the reason why it goes all over the world is because those things work, that we have that connection together. What I learned from doing service work, and I learned it from Larry too, that I can have a little bit more tact. I can have Mm -hmm. a little bit more understanding. I can Mm -hmm. learn how to be a little bit more diplomatic. I can learn mm-hmm. that I don't have to get my own way, that there are other people that have mm-hmm. some great ideas much better than mine. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. can learn that I can sit there and listen to someone because they have a right to be talking, even though I don't want to mm-hmm. hear them, but I can learn how to listen right. to them. So there's mm-hmm. so much that I learn from service work in doing those things, of getting into the general service representative because I was a secretary for the Southeast Texas Area Assembly. I got to do that, but that's a lot of, it is an awful lot of work. But you yeah. recognize there are people together, and that's what our aim is, is to keep Alcoholics Anonymous really alive. That just yeah. going to yeah. meetings isn't going to do it. You know, you're one of the few guests I've had on the show so far that has really talked about an active involvement in the business end of AA and then the the basic administrative end of AA to keep it, like you said, solid and immutable so that it works everywhere well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember, and maybe I'm mistaken, but you were a GSR to the Rosewood Group for a while, were you not? Yes. Yeah. I remember you would report. And it was always interesting because what I find in, in groups that don't have GSRs, they're still great at talking about the program. But hearing about what's going on in other places really reminds you how worldwide our fellowship really is. The Zoom has been great for that, but it used to be the GSRs would come in and talk about stuff that was going on in the district or in the region or going on in New York, especially before the fourth edition was released in 2001. All of the GSR reports that were coming back on that were all fascinating and and important for people to see the connection. Mm -hmm. So you did that kind of service work. Is that something you've done throughout your sobriety over the 31 years? Absolutely. Yes, I've either done like would chair a meeting, or I would always be doing something in that respect up until just the last couple of years. And I still have led meetings, I I chair meetings, but I haven't been a part of the service work. I I helped other people that are doing that. So in that respect, I am helping people who are GSRs to say this Uh is what you do and how you do this. That must have been a pretty gratifying experience for you all the way along. Absolutely, you can get really angry. That's the nice thing about alcohol. <laughs> it can get really angry, but you also recognize when when you walk away. The good thing about this is that you can walk away and you can still be friends with these people. Yeah. You can have very different opinions on things. But when you're voting, it's like 
it actually comes together and it's okay. It, I might not get my way, but this is the way it is for right now. I was around when they did the coins yeah. and the triangle. Uh -huh, right. We talked about that triangle for a year. And we also talked about the Spanish-speaking big book. And that uh -huh. they had problems with that for like three years. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot yeah. of things that were going on that, uh, or even the big book, they were trying, somebody tried to publish it in Germany and the things that they had to do in order to keep somebody from publishing our big book. Because in the very beginning, they did not have a copyright. So the big book itself could go, but if it's in another language, they do have copyrights. Now, as you've, as you've stayed sober over all these years, uh, looking back, can you point to some of the challenges that you experienced along the way that your program came to the rescue or pulled you out of a tough situation or experiences? When I had about, I don't know, six or seven years sober, uh -huh. my nephew, who was 17, died in Kansas. Mm. And I mm -hmm. called my sponsor up and I told her what was going on. And, and I and I said, I don't want to go. Mm. I don't want to go. And mm -hmm. what she said was, Emily, because I was thinking that I had to say something or be there and know something or has some sort of answers or anything. And she says, no, Emily, it's important that you go, but you just mm -hmm. need to be present and accounted for. During that time, and I had a lot of help that I was actually going to the Rosewood group mm -hmm. and I called someone up and I said, my nephew died. And I was just devastated. And this friend said, you need mm -hmm. to go to a meeting. And I said, I'm not going to a meeting. My <laughs> nephew just died. And uh -huh. they said, no, get to a meeting. And so I went to the Rosewood group uh -huh. and I sat down and I said that my nephew died. And I thought they were going to talk about me. Yeah. And they started talking about stuff. And I thought, well, they're not talking about me. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. I realized at the end of the meeting, what they were doing was helping me to recognize my foundation. Yeah. That it, it was really important for me to keep my foundation because we can help you get through this, but you need to keep this strong. And I learned that from that meeting. That that was because uh, wow. I, you know, I'm thinking it was all supposed to be all about me, but no, it's about Alcoholics Anonymous and how I stay sober through this. That wow. was really important. And then there got to a point where I could not pray. Hmm. It felt totally empty inside. And I wish that I could know right where it was because there's a part in the 12 and 12 where Bill says exactly these words that you're going to go through. It says, all of us, without exception, pass through times when we can pray only with the greatest exertion of will. Occasionally, we go even further than this. We are seized with a rebellion so sickening that we simply won't pray. When these things happen, we should not think too ill of ourselves. We should simply resume prayer as soon as we can, doing what we know to be good for us. Wow. So I was not praying. Something felt empty inside. I knew that it was wrong and it scared me. But I remember being in my apartment. And I got out my books, I got out the tone, and I opened up the page, right to that page. Isn't and that, I isn't that amazing? Yes, yeah, so I started reading this and I went, well, I said, oh my goodness. <laughs> How did Bill know that? Was this happening around the, the nephew thing? It was around the nephew thing. I didn't know how to handle this. I did not know uh -huh. how to handle this. The praying wasn't working. I felt empty inside because I didn't know how to do family. I didn't know how to do all of this stuff. And so I got to this this is what we do. This is not just about Emily. And wow. then we get to talk about it. Yeah. And we keep on talking about it yeah. until you recognize that you're okay. What a wonderful realization that must have been mm -hmm. for you at the time. Did you find that your ability to pray was uh, improved from that day on? Or did you, did you just have a different attitude about it? It took a little time. I read that yeah. and I kept uh -huh. praying. It's like, you know, right in the very beginning, you right. pray whether you believe in it or not. I remembered right. to pray yeah. and it yeah. slowly comes back to me. I keep on doing it and it will come back to me. And it did. Yeah. That's been many times where I recognize it's like, yes, I didn't wasn't going to do this God thing when I first came in. So yeah. what I did, and they said you had to have an idea of this higher power. And so my first higher power, it was a disco ball because I thought, well, you know, it's got little mirrors to see everything because I wasn't going to do because I grew up with religious. They had statues and all of this. And I think I'm not doing that. Yeah. I'm not doing that. Yeah. And then because it's that's what it says in the big book, it says 
having your own power as long as it makes sense to you. Yeah. It doesn't matter what other people think as long as it makes sense to you. And so I did that. Uh And then I was praying. And then I realized I had to change a little bit because my ideas were changing. And then my next higher power view in my head was a mixture of Walter Brennan and Catherine Hepburn. And Walter Brennan played this grandfather on The Real McCoys, and he was just a yeah, lovely grandfather. Right. So it's Walter Brennan and Catherine Hepburn. Grandpappy Amos, right? It was yes, Grandpappy Amos, right. the head of the clan. That's right. So that was my next idea that I came with. So that it had, it was like a progression, and that this connection wow. to my higher power, it does keep changing. As long as, you know, wow. as I'm here, as I keep on doing these things, finding that connection inside, you know, the great reality is deep within, whatever it is that you believe. I know that I've sponsored Wiccans and all sorts of religions and people that don't believe, and it doesn't matter. As long as it makes sense to you and you're not hurting others, go yeah. for it, because it's better than yeah. what I had before. Yeah, that that's a remarkable way to think about it, too. I'm sure that experience at that time prepared you for other things along the way. Can you think of any other times your program was tested or were there any times within your sobriety where you moved away from the program or felt like drinking or? Moving mm-hmm. to Houston was one of the most difficult things I'd ever done. I was in mm. Kansas City. I had a couple years sober. I had my people, Mm. and then the place where I worked, they were closing down, but this was back in the 80s, and people, you know, companies really helped you to find jobs. And so they interviewed me here in Houston. I was buying a house, and they Mm. transferred me. I was gone within two weeks. These people that were so nice to me, they let me get my money back. Uh It was wonderful, so I didn't, so I could get out and do in the house. I moved down. I knew nobody. Houston was the most terrifying place I'd ever been to. Absolutely Mm. terrifying. My sponsor drove me down here with three cats. (laughs) (laughs) And at the time, and I thought, I think that's likely I'll never do that again. And I called up Intergroup and said, we need a meeting. And I was over at, you know, I didn't know any of this. I was over off of Richmond and Dunvale, where all these meetings are all over. I called up Intergroup for a meeting close by, and they sent us to Post Oak. (laughs) (laughs) It was just long ways away. There's other meetings that are like seven blocks away. Yeah. And so I started going to meetings, but what my sponsor told me was that it it is an extremely difficult thing to move in in Alcoholics Anonymous. It really is to to, to try to get that started all over again, having your connections, having your people. It's really difficult. It's really scary. My sponsor, my service Mm. sponsor said, I needed to go to meetings every day. I hated every meeting I went to in Houston for two years. They didn't even pray right. And I wanted to go home every day. But they said, you know, go to a meeting every day. Slowly, I got to have people be there and the meetings that I liked. But it it was, I had to work really hard on that, of letting people in all over again, because that's not what I do. Yeah. So you saw the value of going to meetings. There must have been a part of you that knew deep down that you would get used to the meetings and you would make friends and you would start to work your program. I've got a guy I've sponsored for a long, long time. And he was here in Houston, I want to say for about a dozen years. And then he moved. And for the longest time, he always kept calling me up and saying, I'm miserable here. I'm miserable here. They don't do things the way those were the best meetings in the world in Houston. And He was just beside himself about it. And the only advice I could give him is, I guess, the advice you you were given and the thinking that you had, don't worry about it. Just go to meetings. Just go to meetings and make sure you introduce yourself to as many people as possible. And it was a slow progress for him because he'd been sober a long time. But finally, he started to make some friends. He actually even started working the steps again. So it can be done, but I've also known other people who have moved and haven't stayed sober as a result of AA is not the same here. It's a different thing. If I can't have it the way it was, then I don't want to do it. But what my sponsor told me one day, because I kept calling her too, because she went back to Kansas. She drove me down here and then she went back to Kansas. And so I would keep calling Uh her and one day she just said, Emily, I love you. You're crazy. Go to a therapist and get a new sponsor. Get a new sponsor. Because <laughs> I needed to hear that, so that I had, you know, yeah. so that I could, uh, that I had to start getting established here. 
So mm-hmm. I, I needed mm-hmm. to hear, and I did need therapy because I really was. That was another time where I really needed to sit down and talk to somebody because I needed the help. Houston wow. was terrifying. It really yeah. was right at the yeah. very beginning. One of the purposes of this AA Recovery Interviews podcast is to kind of let people who may not have a whole lot of sobriety hear from people who do, but whose lives have continued from the time they got sober till the present day, and they're still sober. So somewhere along the way, they must have faced some struggles and some problems, but there must have also been some terrific gifts along the way that kept them engaged. Can you think of any things that AA has made possible for you that were previously beyond your wildest dreams? When I think of Alcoholics Anonymous and what I have gotten from being in this program, it's mm-hmm. not the outside stuff. Mm. It's learning that I, what it was like to really be a friend to someone. It's mm-hmm. learning what it's like to really be a sister. Oh, it's yeah. learning what it's like to really be a part of work, to be mm-hmm. there for the whole time to really be yeah. present and really participate in the work environment the way I'm supposed mm-hmm. to. It's this integrity that I have. Mm-hmm. It's the self-acceptance that I have. It's that I truly cherish what I have from Alcoholics Anonymous, that I mm. have integrity and honesty, and I know how to have compassion I learned how to listen mm-hmm. in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have mm-hmm. learned mm-hmm. how to care for who I am today and know that mm. who I am, it's a good thing. Mm. And that's not something mm. that, you know, I could walk down the street before I got sober and I could just say, I hate you, Emily. I hate you, Emily. Mm. And I do that a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. do that anymore. I mm. know what it's like to truly be a part of mm-hmm. this whole thing. And that mm. is so powerful. Alcoholics Mm. Anonymous is the only thing that's more powerful than my alcoholism. And it's the only thing that will keep me this way. Because I know for a fact that if I walk away from this, you know, this I I cherish what I have today. But I also know Uh that I can go out again, too. One of the things that I did when I was drinking is I don't need to take care of this today. I can take care of this tomorrow. But I know that if I do that, if I walk away, if somebody makes me angry and say, I don't want to go to that meeting anymore. To recognize that, you know, the only thing that I've done perfectly in 31 years is the first half of the first step. Yeah. And that's how Bill says it in, this, in the book. I've done I've been 100% sober for 31 years. But my life has gotten unmanageable a lot because yeah. my ego yeah. gets involved. And yeah. when I get there, it's me recognizing. You know, sometimes it takes a while for me to recognize that my ego's gotten involved. That as I, that, then when my ego gets involved, it's like, I don't want to do this right yeah. now. And sometimes the ego masquerades and walks around with other ideas mm-hmm. like procrastination mm-hmm. or ego-driven thoughts and schemes. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, what we've got is our sobriety. And it's the only thing that stands between us and that next drink. But also the recognition that insanity can return. And whenever I'm around somebody who says, oh, I, don't, I haven't gone to very many meetings, but uh, I'm staying sober. I know I won't drink. Oh, I haven't prayed lately, but I, I'm certain I won't drink. I don't want to go back to... And I have to remind them, you know what? Insanity returns. And then, and then we drink. So like you, I've got a very healthy respect for this disease and the fact that it will take what it can get. It'll exploit any little glitch I have in my program to make me think that if I can't work my program perfectly, why do it at all? That all or nothing thinking. Did you ever have that? Absolutely. I I think I was very lucky too, because there was a time when I was going to some meetings and like everyone was talking about complacency, mm-hmm. being complacent, getting bored yeah. with this. And it's mm-hmm. me knowing that it's important for me to keep this program alive. Mm-hmm. I, I have never been bored in Alcoholics Anonymous because I really mm. want to participate. I'm not be, I'm not going to a meeting to get entertained. I'm not going to a meeting just oh, yeah. to have lunch with somebody afterwards. I'm going there because it saves my life to be there. It truly does. And that I can learn something today that I didn't know yesterday. If I am listening and if I am participating, you know, I learned early on. And I remember this guy and he said, one of the things he does when he meditates is that he meditates while they're saying, reading out how it works because they read it every day. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I don't believe it. But I, he said, I listen to the words, every word that they say when they're reading how it works. I hear what the Hmm. problem is. 
I hear what the solution Mm -hmm. is, and I am prepared for the meeting. And I started (laughs) doing that, and it makes me truly be prepared for the meeting so that I really try to listen. You know, people hear it thousands of times. But if I'm listening to the words, and that's what I learned early on of saying the serenity prayer, listen to what they're saying. Don't just say the words. I grew up with just saying words prayers. Right. And it's not saying the words, it's listening to the power of what you're saying. That yeah. it makes a huge difference if I'm listening to what I'm saying and the power that's yeah. in the prayer or what they're reading. So uh-huh. I am ready for the day. I get that. In fact, it sounds a lot like mindfulness where you are concentrating on every single word like you would concentrate on your breathing. So I love that idea. And I think that's something great to recommend to other people feel like we could go on talking forever because you've been so marvelous in, in presenting your life, the really hopeful things about sobriety that you have found and that you live your everyday life with. And that to me is just extraordinary, Emily. You are a big part of sobriety and my love for sobriety. And I love you. And I'm, I'm so happy that you were able to do this. And my hope is that everybody who hears it will gain a better understanding of what it's like to truly love the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you very much for the opportunity. This was great. Well, my friends, that's it for AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to Emily M. for sharing her story, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, please share it with your fellow AAs, sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. Show them how to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other podcast providers. If you really liked it, I'd be most grateful if you can give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find us. Visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. And please join the AA Recovery Interviews Facebook group, where our fellowship gathers online. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.